All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Kente Corner, your favorite casual Hoya basketball podcast. I'm Bobby Bancroft, and I'm joined with, once again, back by popular demand, Marcus Washington. You can get him on Twitter at MTC <laughs> with Mook. <laughs> Sorry, it's not that funny. Sorry, it's a little bit uh, uh, inside uh, baseball here. Anyway, Marcus, we were supposed to be actually right now under normal circumstances, we would have been watching watching Georgetown and DePaul as they near the half, or it would probably be about halftime. Um, instead, at around 2.45 today, we got an email from Georgetown saying, Georgetown's men's basketball game against DePaul was postponed. The Big East Conference has announced that the Georgetown home game against DePaul, scheduled for January 13th, is off due to COVID-19 related issues within the Hoyas program. No makeup dates has been announced. Now, both of these teams are at the bottom of the Big East standings, but I think it actually would have been a big game. Georgetown is 3-8, and 1-5. and five. DePaul has had a lot of their own problems and unlucky in circumstances like this. They flew in from Chicago. Uh, they landed at Dulles. DePaul 1-4, and four, and oh, I'm sorry, they're 1-5, and five, and they're 0-4 in the Big East. And I say big game because for Georgetown, it's not, you know, must win because I don't think they're going to make a run to the tournament, but must win. And can you avoid finishing last? And if you do that, you probably need to beat a team like DePaul at home. What do you think? Oh, there's no doubt uh, this would have been a barn burner. And I was really interested in seeing how Georgetown would play in like the last seven, eight minutes of this game, just because you know somehow, some way this game will be close no matter which team would have ran out to the early lead. And then it would have been one of those situations of which team could make the less egregious error would be the team that probably would win. But both teams have been in this situation during the season where they've had some um, some bad play that last four and five minutes. So it would have been interesting to see if Georgetown could get over some of their mental mistakes that uh, Patrick Ewan spoke about earlier this week that they've had down the stretches of games. And real quick, so we don't know if it is a player that has COVID, if it's someone that's in, I believe they break it down into tiers. Tier one, I think, would include basketball staff, managers, um, the coaches, obviously, we know over the summer, Patrick Ewing had a pretty you know, serious bout of COVID based on the reporting. He did recover, thankfully. He's been, he's been fine. Uh, we spoke with Patrick yesterday. He seemed, you know, even for a struggling team, they've been having better practices. Um, as far as the Big East goes, Villanova's currently on a pause. They announced their pause on December 27th. Their last game they played was December 23rd. They've missed three games. They're scheduled to miss their next game, which was what's supposed to be this Friday against UConn. So the big thing for Georgetown is, and I retweeted Matt Norlander from CBS Sports. So you're looking at today's game, January 13th, not happening. Georgetown was supposed to go on a three-game road trip starting Saturday at Providence, then making their way to Milwaukee on the 20th, a week from today, next Wednesday, and then finishing up at Xavier. If you go by the 14th, I think based on the fact that DePaul flew here, that 
this was a testing today. You know, Patrick's told us a bunch. They test three times a week. My guess is maybe they test Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I don't know. Or maybe they test on game days. I'm not sure. But, you know, we, we could be looking at Matt. Like I said, Matt Norlander said they might miss their next two games. If it's 14 days from today, that, you know, based on my math, that means you miss that entire road trip. And they might not play again until January 30th. Just your kind of overall thoughts on COVID. I know that you're, you know, you're coaching currently in a high school setting, which is going to have its own different rules and regulations. Um, I think you kind of, not that to make light of this at all, it's very serious. We hope everybody's okay. But didn't you at some level sort of expect that this would happen at some point? Oh, there's no doubt about it. I, to be frank with you, I thought it would have happened more, and it's happened quite a bit. Um, you knew you were going to lose games. You knew you had to build in a schedule where you could have makeup games. And um, I don't have the Big East uh, schedule as far as conference-wise in front of me. I have Georgetowns. Yeah. But are there enough dates to make that up? And if there aren't enough dates, then that's on the conference. Because you knew this was going to happen, um, especially when the uh, schedule first came out because we weren't um, as far ahead as we are as far as in vaccines and those type of things. And even then, the rollout's been slower than what many anticipated. And so I just think that college basketball should have seen this coming, and there has to be a way or uh, there needs to be more dates where Georgetown can make up that game. But that's going to be tough because if you miss an entire three-game road trip, and you're working around three different university schedules to get there, that could put Georgetown in a bad situation in how they make up the games, you know, what days, how many games are in a row, just just a bunch of unknowns that a team that's struggling the way they are struggling doesn't need. Yeah, so like I said, there's only two of the 11 schools are currently on a pause. Villanova hasn't played since before Christmas, which – for me at my house, you know, having a three-year-old running around, Christmas feels like two months ago, right? Like so much has changed, and they haven't they haven't played since then. So it, when you look at Georgetown's schedule and kind of like, okay, where are the dates that make sense? I think that's kind of a useless activity because I don't think it's as simple as just squeezing in a game. Let's say they have four days off, you know, in between Providence and at Creighton, you know, from the 30th of January to February 3rd. I think it's, and we've seen a little bit of this with Georgetown because they were supposed to play Creighton. Um, That game got moved at the end of uh, 2020. I think it's more of everything gets switched. It's not as simple as just, okay, we're going to plug this game over here. There's just so many moving parts. And I think there's a pretty good chance because DePaul's really behind it. Villanova's behind it now. Georgetown probably is about to get behind it where you just see stuff like, for instance, Georgetown has not, played has not played Xavier yet well maybe they go to Xavier and maybe they just play them back-to-back days you know, you know what yeah we just, we just have to get this we have to get these games in now I think in the beginning of the year I had Kevin McNamara on from Providence and then we ended up getting Val Ackerman not on the podcast with Val but we were you know we we, we listened to the Big East commissioner on you know a media a media call just they have to get, you know, 14, I think it's 13. I think Kevin said 13 games. I think I've heard 14 games. But you basically have to get about 14 games in to be eligible for the NCAA tournament, which is what all these teams are kind of fighting for. Georgetown, maybe not so much. They're kind of behind it as far as their record for being eligible for that. But 
I think you're going to see some really weird stuff. I don't think we're going to see that Mohegan Sun bubble that some people just wanted because, you know, it's probably the safest thing. I don't think we're going to see that. It's probably too expensive. But I think you are going to see weird stuff where not every school in the Big East gets 20 games. And maybe your 20 games includes three against Xavier and you don't play Providence. You know what I mean? Like there's going to be some weird stuff. Yeah. And that does make sense. And other conferences have already done that where you just play them, uh, play an opponent back-to-back games in the same location. Locally, uh, GW did it with Duquesne, I think it was last weekend, where they played both Saturday and Sunday here in Washington, D.C. And ultimately, it's what you said, it, it's not as simple as just plugging in dates. And maybe that's just how you get those games in for a team like Georgetown. Uh, I guess the big question is, do you think that that makes such a big difference if they play Xavier back-to-back there as opposed to having your traditional home-and-home? I think some would say it's not going to make a difference anyway that the results would be the same. Yeah, we talked about this. So when Georgetown – who's Ken Pompage am I on right now? I'm on Villanova's. When Georgetown – they had their game – was it Connecticut? What game got moved? So, okay, so they had – they switched their schedule around. The, the the UConn game was moved. They slid in – so on December 13th, originally, Georgetown was hosting UConn. That was a Sunday. And on Friday, they had played Villanova. So when that game initially got moved, actually, I reached out to the Big East to try and see how far in advance the uh, a reschedule game can happen. The guidance was basically – we're just going to do our best to get in. So there's no, like, you got to give a team 48 hours notice type of thing. So at that point I said, Hey, look, what, you know, you played Villanova on Friday. That's your closest school. Why don't you just go play Villanova on Sunday? You know, you keep your FS one spot. It doesn't matter. You know, you're basically giving Fox a TV show, which is all they kind of want. Right. So they can run commercials. Uh, um, It ended up being that St. John's filled that spot. And at that point, I was saying that for the underdog, Georgetown, which will be the underdog in almost every game, tonight they weren't. They were favored by two points, basically, on most on most sites. I think that if you are the underdog, if I, I think that there's some benefit because let's say you go and you lose like you're supposed to, and then you play again the next night. Well, look, we're talking about kids. And like, oh, we're playing so-and-so again. Like, we just beat them. We'll beat them again. And I think that there can be an advantage if the team that's the underdog and Georgetown, like I said, will be an underdog most times. I think that they – I think it would benefit them. You can tell me where that's flawed logic if you like. No, and it might benefit them because you're right. You don't get um, you don't get that break that you, you usually would get to review the film, and you then you have about five or six other opponents and then you come back to it that ends it's more nba-ish like it was an nba playoff series and it probably does lend itself because young kids probably do think well we beat them we'll just beat them again yeah um to an upset and especially when you're playing against an experienced uh team like georgetown is they do have senior leadership and maybe that would have played in their favor or maybe down the line if that situation happens it will play in their favor, especially if they're playing a younger team in the Big East. Now, I'll say this. The the way that that Georgetown-Villanova game went is I don't think it actually would have worked on that weekend because, you know, if you remember, Georgetown was up 18 
on Villanova. So I think that they would have had Villanova's attention in the back-to-back. But I think, generally speaking, if a team, let's say, you know, like, let's say they're 12-point underdogs to Xavier and Xavier beats them by 15 and they come out and it's not really in the balance. I think if they play them again the next day, Georgetown's probably looking to get that W. And the other team's like, oh, yeah, we're doing this again. This is boring. Like, I want to play 2K or, you know what I mean? I just, maybe that's just mm-hmm. my my fantasy to try and, like, get Georgetown to five or six conference wins. Uh, it could be. <laughs> it could not be. I don't know. But anyway, we don't know when Georgetown's next game is. I suspect it won't be until the end of the month. But we'll see. It could be. Tonight's game could have got postponed for contact tracing, right? Like, we don't we don't know. Right. Like, we weren't told that someone has COVID. They're, it's just being canceled because of COVID. So it could be that one of the assistant coaches filled out a form, and I recently saw – you know what I mean? Like, I'm not trying to, like, put anybody, you know, on the spot here. I, this is just me, right. you know, saying that there, there are scenarios that don't involve it being, um, you know, players are infected, right? Like, there's, there, there's other right. reasons deposit so okay no doubt okay so we got to talk to coach patrick ewing before this game this game that didn't happen tuesday which was cool i was kind of focused i know that you got on there i think you might have been on when i was asking questions but i was kind of focused on the freshmen and basically and you know you coach high school so the idea that all these freshmen that he has except for dante harris are not playing as much as they want to, or they've ever been used to in their life. All these guys have been the guy on their, on their, you know, their, their youth league team, their AAU team, their high school team. If you're a kind of recruited scholarship player to Georgetown, it's likely you've been on the court most of your life, correct? Yes. There's no doubt about that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So my question was, you have all these guys that you have to manage the first time in their life, they're facing some adversity between not playing consistently or not playing, you know, for games at a time. We saw against Syracuse, we hadn't seen Colin Holloway or Malcolm Wilson in about four or five games, and they played in the first half. So my question was, how do you how do you deal with that? How do you and the staff deal with managing? I don't even know if egos is the right word, but maybe you know, or just the uncomfort of I'm I'm, I'm away from home. And I came here for basketball and I'm not playing that much. And this is normal for freshmen, but it's for them individually. It's their first time. So he said something kind of interesting. You know, he said that that was right. Most of these guys have always been the man. And he says that they talk with them. They watch film. They help them prepare. But I thought what was interesting was he said, and I'm just going to read out here what, uh, what he told me. He said, it's funny because one of the biggest things that Coach Thompson told me, part of his education to the Thompson School and by the way, I made a note of this. And if it was a different setting, more follow-ups would be, well, what, what are what are some of the other things at the Thompson School? Um, <laughs> part of his education, part you know, part of Patrick's education at the Thompson School is a lot of the times you have to recruit your players that are on campus more than you recruit the kids that you're trying to get onto campus. Because if they're not playing here or things are not going well, there's always going to be people reaching out trying to tell them to move on. Okay. You try to encourage them and show them the mistakes that they're making either in practice or the games. And our job as coaches is to develop them. If they don't play this year, then you expect them to play next year. What did you, what's kind of your reactions to that, to that quote? 
Well, to me, I would like to hear him speak in more detail as what he's looking out of them. And it can't be the general, hey, work hard and get better. Yeah. Those guys were sold some sort of package on if you come to Georgetown, this is why it's the best choice for you. So where is the disconnect? Where are they lacking in that? The big thing is I don't even think it's managing egos. It's managing expectations. And mm-hmm. if my expectation was, hey, I know I'm not going to get 30 minutes a night, but I do expect 12 to 16 minutes a night, why are we falling short of that 12 to 16 minutes a night? Why aren't we seeing guys for a five-game stretch? Uh, and then next thing you know, they pop up out of nowhere in the first half in your rotation. I know he said several times, that he does his rotation by feel. And um, I I would just like to know more in detail because as a freshman, my thing is this recruiting never stops in this day and age, and you know this. Uh, just because I'm at a school uh, doesn't mean I'm going to be there past that first year. There's 700 to 800 kids that are in the portal, uh, you know, in any given off season. So he's right. You do have to continue to recruit the kids that you already have but you also have to give them a clear, concise pathway. And I just don't know if Coach Ewing has given them that. Has he given them a clear, concise pathway where they don't think if they return that this could happen again next year? Because if they think that, then they're not staying. No one stays anymore because they don't want to mail away a year eligibility just because how the NBA and the NBA draft works and how professional basketball works as a whole. So if they're not convinced that, hey, I'm within that pathway, I'm just going to mail off this freshman year as a learning experience, they will be gone. And and we've seen it. We've seen local guys uh, leave a local school and transfer to another local school. In fact, we saw that today um, in the George Washington game. So um, he better keep a close eye on them and have the conversation of, these are the things I'm looking for. You are on the path to them. Trust me, you are on that path, and then they have to believe you when you say that. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, basically, I thought that he gave me more than I expected. I expected only to get the first part, which was, oh, you know, yeah, they they have to. There is an adjustment, and we work with them. I did thought that he let us into his thoughts a little bit more then maybe sometimes he does. But you're right. There's a lot of follow-ups to that. And there's a lot of individual follow-ups to that. And I kind of got to that a little bit later. But let me stay here for one more second. We haven't gotten any of the information. I keep meaning to reach out to the Big East. This would have been the time of year where the Big East conference calls start. And I don't know how often you're able to get on those. But I find those very useful. One, for instance, covering Georgetown, if they're going to play you know, Seton Hall over the weekend, you have a chance to maybe ask Kevin Willard a question, or you can listen to other reporters listen to Kevin Willard. You, It's pretty hard to be on every school's mailing list, right? Like your email would be flooded, right? Yes. But those biggies conference calls, you know, basically to let people know you got, now you have 11 coaches. Each coach usually gets, it's about, I think it's like eight minutes or so. And I think that this would be a good question to ask some of the more experienced coaches, obviously, you know, Jay Wright, um, Mike Anderson, even though he hasn't been at St. John's for a long time, he's been a college coach for a long time and he's been a successful college coach. And then, you know, guys like Cooley and Willard and, you know, almost all the coaches, I guess Butler's coach is kind of new and Xavier's coach is kind of new 
to being a head coach at this level. But I think that would be an, an interesting um, question to ask other coaches to see what they think or to see what see what they say. But yeah, you could you know if we had an unlimited amount of time, I could have kept following up. So particularly for Sibley, what you know what what is it you're telling him? What is it he's not doing? And okay, next Clark, you know, okay, next Burger. Um, and so on and so on. Oh, I guess it'd just be to Holloway because obviously Dante Harris is playing. Um, a little bit later, I came down to, and I kind of try to touch on this again. I tried to follow up basically a little bit with Kobe Clark, who we saw in the opener against UNBC, had one of the best debuts ever. I want to say he had 10 rebounds in maybe only 11 or 12 minutes. A lot mm-hmm. of that was because... Chudier Bilay did not play, so Clark played a lot. And Clark started the game that Blair was... Blair started the game on the bench. So I asked him about rebounding because Syracuse out-rebounded them, kind of surprising. And for a team that can't manufacture points that well, you know, they don't turn the other team over. And so offensive rebounding and putbacks would be a great, you know, spot to steal some points. So I said... You know, I asked specifically about rebounding, and I said, do you think Kobe Clark could help you there? And so he talked about the freshman. He said, I think that all of them have done something in every opportunity that they have been given. Uh, they've all shown a bright spot. Then he went into the whole, I can't play everybody, which is true. He, I mean, he can't, right? I mean, you can't play 12 guys. And he gets, he says, as a coach, you can only play a limited amount of people. There are times when I'm going to try and get everybody in, and you can't. Uh, when I was coaching in the NBA with Steve Clifford, told me a story when he was a college coach, he tried to play 12 guys. They had a terrible season. He realized that instead of playing that many guys, if you cut your rotation down, there are going to be people who are going to be disappointed, but the guys who are playing are the ones you think are going to give you the best opportunity to win, and that's how I look at it. So obviously that's a lot of words. What's your reaction to that quote? Well, I was very surprised to say that, and I'll tell you why. Last season, I thought that he played too many players willingly. You know, before all of the transfers and the suspensions, there was times he played 11 guys in the first half. In the first half. So I was a little shocked when he told the the Clifford story because I was like, hold on a second. You know, fast forward to a year ago, you were doing exactly that. So um, I I felt like, I don't know, I I just felt like it was almost like uh, a revisionist in a way. Like He tried it last year, it didn't work. He doesn't want to try it again this year, which I can understand to a certain point. But, again, those freshmen, when Akinjo and McClung and LeBlanc were all freshmen, he gave them every opportunity in the world to succeed as freshmen. And it's been the polar opposite with these guys. They have not been given outside of, as you said, Harris, um, they have not given any opportunity to succeed. And it's kind of uh, disconcerting just because of the type of year it's been is what we've spoken about. It's not like this is a surefire tournament team or a tournament team at all. You would think that, hey, if I expect to be here, I know that those guys are going to be my foundation to turn this thing around. And I cannot have them starting from block one and a half next year when I have these opportunities to have them started this year. And I understand that you want to be uh, true and respectful to the seniors and making sure that this is their last time at Georgetown and they kind of get the playing time that they've earned over four years. But he has to also think about what's best for the program. 
And I think what's best for the program is, is that those guys start getting defined roles, that they start understanding what the expectations are, uh, not only in practice but in games, um, giving them the room to fail. Uh, all those things that will make your program better going forward. Because really, you're not saving anything this season. Yeah, and I, I should add to that at the beginning of it. He said, he repeated my question back to him, and will Kobe be able to help us with rebounding? I'm not sure. I'm playing the people that I think will give us the best opportunity to win, and that's it. And then that's when I interjected and said, well, I brought up Kobe Clark specifically because he had, in his debut, maybe it wasn't fair to expect this from him, but he rebounded so well and was just so active that, you know, I think fans are probably a little surprised he hasn't played more since he got back from his injury and maybe the injury is still affecting him. Georgetown usually keeps things pretty close. So you're not going to really hear about someone's status in that way. At least I don't expect to, I don't expect you to get up and say, honestly, he's still kind of lingering. That's just not something I expect to hear from them. If, if he's available, he's, he's available, you know? So yeah, it is interesting because you mentioned the seniors and Blair and Pickett have been there the whole time, but we're seeing consistent minutes for Carey, who starts, obviously, and for Belay. And those guys, while they're seniors, they're not Georgetown seniors, so they're new as well. And maybe at this point, maybe at three and eight, halfway into a season, Ewing's not ready to at least publicly admit that there's playing to our next season. But we haven't really asked him that. That's a question that comes in the next couple of weeks. But by his actions, it's clear he hasn't given the white flag, right? Because if not, we would be seeing more of these guys. Oh, there's no doubt he hasn't. And I I understand. If I had been there for four years, I have not made a tournament, that I'm going to give myself every opportunity to make the tournament, no matter how fleeting and no matter how much I'm hoping for it, and he's not willing to throw the towel in, with that being said, I'm not sure if there's going to come a point in the season where he will be willing to throw the towel in, which is what kind of worries me and concerns me, because there has to be a record, a win total, a point, a date, a game in his head where he says, if we're not at X by now, then it's time for me to start looking ahead. And um, if he doesn't have that in his head, I don't think he's managing the program well. Because as much as you are on the hook for this season and you have to do right by the season and the guys playing with this season, you are the caretaker of the program itself, which is something that's not a an annual thing. It is it's a generational thing. And you have to keep taking care and cultivating that, which means that there has to come a time where – we need to know, is T.J. Berger more than just a guy who shoots threes? Uh, Sibley has shown that he can do a combination of things. Okay, let's see if he can do that over a four- and five- and six-minute stretch. Or is it one of these things that we see it over two minutes? Those are the things that you need to learn. And this season seems like if there's ever a season that can be a learning season for coaches, this seems to be the season that you can do that. And I would like to see him do that. Yeah, and it might just be because we're in the moment, but I really do think, so if you look at the bottom of the standings, the teams with all four losses or five losses. So you got Marquette coming into tonight was three and four. 
Providence three and four. St. John's beat Butler last night. They're two and five. Butler, as I said, they lost. They fell to two and five. Georgetown's one and five. And then DePaul's only played four conference games. They're 0 and four. So I just named that's one, two, three, four, five. Six of the 11 teams in the Big East all have either four or five losses, right? Georgetown's one and five. Not a great spot. But when you look at their schedule, okay, you played DePaul, right? They're down there with you. What's the next game? Providence. Okay, they're there with four losses. Okay, then what do you do? Okay, you go to Marquette. They've got four losses. And it was that was a very winnable game that you had yeah. recently. Uh, um, you know, Xavier's three and two. They're 10 and two overall. That might be a mountain too high to climb. But it did seem like if you're being really optimistic, let, let's say Georgetown gets that win against DePaul. Okay, two and five. You know, Providence. I think most people would probably say, you know, Georgetown's not as good as Providence. All the different metrics have them, you know, as a lesser team. But Providence, as we know, plays these games that are kind of close. They're not particularly, you know, blowing your doors off of. You get a win there. So I do think that we were in between having a home game against DePaul and then two, I would consider, winnable games. Let's see what Ken Palm, let's see what Ken Palm says about that. Okay, they don't give Georgetown the best chance in the world to win at Providence. They have them losing by seven, 26% chance of winning at Marquette, losing by nine, 22%. But if you go by the records currently, you're kind of having like a stretch of three games that are winnable. Now, if you lose those games, right, and you end up one and eight, maybe we do start to see some stuff because at that point, you know, you've played your nine games. Obviously, everything with that just changed because tonight's game didn't happen against DePaul and it's probably I'd say better than 50 50 chance at least the Providence game doesn't happen and probably Marquette but does that make sense like they were kind of getting to a point where it's now or never and by now I mean can you compete to be a middle of the pack team or are you that 11th place team that you were predicted well I think that for me playing a freshman I don't think that playing a freshman more would necessarily hurt them, meaning okay. I think it might help them. I think getting Blair off the court and, you know, uh, Patrick talked about it, this this idea that he's become a volume shooter. Well, maybe getting him off the court would help uh, take some of the pressure off him. Maybe he doesn't feel like he has to do that. Making Maybe getting Terry off the court more and some of these guys off the court more would actually make them more impactful in those last five or six minutes where guys are so tired or they've had so much burden on them with stressful minutes that they start making mistakes that they didn't make in the first 34 minutes. I honestly think that if you played the freshman, it might put you in a position where you can win more, not necessarily win less, because I think now your veteran players become more impactful by playing less minutes. That makes sense. I I think there could be value to – Getting, I think we're focusing on Berger here because Jalen Harris isn't part of the program. Getting Berger on the court, you know, basically Javon Blair is playing about 38 minutes a game. How, you know, how can you find a way to to sit Javon Blair? It might sound silly, but just two or three minutes each half. So all of a sudden you go from playing 38 minutes a game to, you know, maybe you're only playing 35 minutes a game, right? And those... That run, whether even if it's just ninety seconds from Berger in the first half, that does give Javon Blair. And if you 
if you coordinate that around a TV timeout, it's an even longer break, right? Yes. Yes. Do you think? Yeah, and that's. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, go on. That's fine. No, I was I was going to say. I mean, I would think that would be the way he would do it. Maybe uh, a minute before the media timeout, you put in this guy, and then you play him for another minute, minute and a half after that. There are there are just ways to do that where your better, more experienced players will have a better chance in those waning moments where these mistakes seem to happen. Um, and it could be just because they're just playing way too much. And Georgetown plays a lot of stressful minutes. Minutes are not created the same. You know, 38 minutes of stress is not the same as 38 minutes where we're up by 18. Even though if you're up by 18, you're probably not playing 38 minutes. But I think you get my point. It, it's yeah. completely different. Georgetown just plays so many stressful minutes. And I think that had he uh, given the freshman a little bit more rope, not as much as he gave Akinjo and McClung and LeBlanc, but just more rope than he gave them then, then he would have been uh, – I think he would have seen the benefits of it now. I think Georgetown would have probably won two or three of those games uh, where they did blow it down the end. I'm not saying that Villanova was one of them, but I do think they would have won two or three more. And so now you're still in the conversation because now you're in the middle of the Big East. Uh, I, I just think it's been mismanaged. How much of a curveball do you think Jalen Harris leaving the program has thrown Ewing? Because You know, last year for as bare bones as they got at the end, they did have two really experienced guards and point guards. Um, Allen, more of a point guard maybe than than, uh, Mosley. But, you know, you lost just so much. That's not even to mention McClung, who was hurt a lot at the end. So Jalen Harris, I know that there was fans that were a little bit frustrated with some of his turnovers, but he was leading the team with five and a half assists. Um, he wasn't scoring a whole lot. He wasn't really taking a lot of shots either, but his percentages of shooting weren't very high. And it did seem like there was some frustration with him, but I think that you could see, even though he was off, he was often too fast and in a hurry where he didn't need to be. I do think that as a senior, as someone that on his third program, I think it was likely he was going to figure it out and to go with Dante Harris, who, you know, God bless him. He's been thrown into something I don't think he could have ever imagined, particularly when you factor in that he was kind of playing at a lower level in Tennessee. He wasn't necessarily playing at a, a high high school. His his high school high school team wasn't in one of the more competitive uh, leagues, from what I understand. So, I, I mean, how much? I'm I'm not, I'm not trying to say that if Jalen Harris is part of the team, that their record is eight and three instead of three and eight. How big of a loss do you think that was? And do you think that the fans, I I think I know the answer to this one, the fans were a complete overreaction to Dante's initial start? Well, I think it's huge because now if he's there, you can play Blair off the ball more, and that would help him a lot. And now you can set up picket probably a little bit more, there are just other things that you could do strategically, not only on the offensive end, but on the defensive end, uh, if he's there. So I do think it's one of those things where it helps others if he is there. And maybe it was a bigger impact than I anticipated 
when he left the program because when he first left, I will admit, I was kind of like, yeah, you know, I didn't know how it would impact the team and maybe it's just impacting the team more um, than I thought. And as far as your second question, yeah, I think it was a little oversold. Uh, one, there was no book on him. Two, it was a game that um, because of the pace, it kind of covers up mistakes because how things were flying up and down the floor and, and stuff like that. So it kind of helped. It was great for a point guard making a debut. But as you can see now, he looks more like a freshman point guard who didn't play high-level basketball. But I'm I'm sort of hesitant to be too hard on him, even though ultimately I don't think he's the answer because when you look at guys who are um, certainly higher ranked than him, a Kobe Love and those type of guys, they're struggling too. Uh, I don't know if it's because of the short off season. I don't know uh, what it is, but those freshman point guards around college basketball are struggling. Yeah, I think I think we spoke on here. We were very excited after that game, but I think that it did put just like Kobe Clark's first game of having all those rebounds in a short period of time. I think that when you when you added someone else that could score, I think that was kind of exciting. And people, you know, obviously that's, you know, people look at points before anything else, whether that's right or wrong, that is kind of what happens. But I think adding the threat of a score, and in that game he kind of did, I mean, almost everything right. He scored, and not just not just shooting, but no one on this Georgetown team gets to the line, and he got to the line. You know, talk about, for you know, all the disagreements people have about McClung, he found a way to get to the hoop, you know, and when you do that and you're struggling, you could still find a way to have a bad shooting night, but you can rack up some points and help your team. So I thought that was good. I was a little concerned because that was the first game where Pickett kind of really didn't play all that well and didn't get as many shots. And that's kind of held form. I think Pickett's last game at Syracuse was his best performance since Dante's been in the starting lineup. So I was a little concerned about that, but I did think after that first game, and we didn't know how long Jalen was going to be out for. Actually, was the first game was just back spasms, right? And then, yeah. and then we, yeah, and then we found out that he was going to be taking a, a leave of absence. I definitely wanted the minutes to go to not be nearly as one sided as they were before. That I wanted them to be probably like sixty forty for Jalen, but I do think that is just a big loss, and I'm not going to try and pretend like I thought. Jalen was going to be an all Big East performer, but it did seem like it, it, it's taken away a lot of what Ewing maybe wanted to try to do, even on, like you say, even on defense, even like even pressing, um, which, yeah. which could be a whole, a whole nother topic. But so that's kind of where Georgetown is. We don't know when they're going to play again. We don't know how severe the COVID is and we wish everyone the best. It's obviously very serious and scary. That's why we're not at the games. That's why the fans aren't at the games. So they made it pretty far into the season without a problem. And hopefully this will not be a big ordeal. It'll just be a hiccup um, as far as the severity and the duration of games lost and all that stuff. So we're, we're, we're wishing the best. Um, Did have some non Georgetown stuff to talk about. Let's stay basketball before we, completely switched sports. And I know this has recently become a college football pod, which is crazy since Georgetown kind of plays at a lower level. Uh, The Nets made a big trade today. I know you're an NBA guy. I'm an NBA guy. I've got the league pass. I usually work a bunch of Wizards games. 
And there's a Georgetown angle to it because Jeff Green, one of really, we got autos in the league and Greg Winnington's on the Nuggets roster. I think that's about it. Um, Jeff Green is main. He, he, he did not get traded, which gives him a decent chance to be in the finals again. He was in the finals with LeBron a couple years ago and he helped LeBron get there. It was at game seven at Boston garden. And you know, he, that was a big, Jeff Green had a big performance. So Jeff Green stays on the Nets. Let me just let you go off on this. NBA trade, what do you think? And how good is it for Jeff Green as far as a finals appearance? Well, first and foremost, I want to correct myself. Um, I combined Kobe White with Caleb Love. I meant Caleb Love and not Kobe Love. And I know I called him Kobe. So let me correct okay. myself before we move forward. That's um, okay. I thought that... Um, the trade itself just absolutely positively probably shook the Milwaukee Bucks. Oh, and um, I and think, since and if you want to just go ahead and say what the actual trade is, since I didn't actually do it, all I did was talk about Jeff Green. Uh, the Nets get James Harden <laughs> and a 2024 second round pick from the Cavaliers. The Rockets get Victor Oladipo, Dante Exum, and um, Rodian's Kurtz. If I am mispronouncing that, I apologize. Uh, the Rockets get three unprotected first-round draft picks in 2022, 2024, and 2026, plus pick swaps in 2021, 2023, 2025, and 2027. Also, Cleveland's 2022 first-round pick via the Milwaukee Bucks. And then the Pacers get Karis LeVert in a 2023 second-round pick from the Rockets. The Cavaliers, at the end of all of this, they get Jared Allen, and Torian Prince. By the way, Cleveland's roster looks much better than probably people realize. <laughs> but um, um, okay, yeah, okay. I I think this um, it does shake up the East. I think it shake up. It really shakes up the Bucks, who um, made a deal that made sense um, against a Nets team without James Harden. I don't know how much it makes sense against the Nets team with James Harden. Um, the Nets kept enough of their depth that they're not run. They have three stars, obviously, but it's not three stars plus a bunch of who is that guy. So I think Brooklyn really, really made out well. And I'm really happy for the Rockets. And the reason why is because I really want Silas to succeed. And as much as people always like to say, oh, make them stay, make them fill his contract, there is no way a coach like Silas, who has waited almost 20 years to get an opportunity, could succeed in that environment if Harden had stayed. So I'm happy for him that now he can probably get back, have a bigger voice in the locker room, and make this team in the image that he wanted to make them and how his vision is. And so, no, I, I mean, those are the things that I took away from the trade. Like I said, the Cavaliers have a better roster than people probably imagine. And for the Pacers, Karis LeVert will fit right in to that environment, probably better than Oladipo. How much do you think the Nets are concerned about Kyrie, who – basically has just been choosing not to play. And if he does start playing again, how do you think him and Harden can function together? Well, you have two 
ball-dominant players, to say the least, one with the dribble and the other one holding it. I don't know how that works. And then you also have Durant, who does like his share of plays that are isolation. So uh, Nash has his work cut out for him. I don't know how much input he gets in for those guys. I would suspect that it's a lot of input from those guys and what they want to run and what spot. Uh, You can also uh, play around with your rotation, where really those three aren't on the floor a lot except maybe at the beginning of the game and down the stretch. And then the other times when you bring in the second unit, you have one or two on the court with them, and then you just rotate the minutes. Um, It takes somewhat creativity, but I'm interested in seeing what the style of basketball is going to be, especially with Kyrie, who's kind of a wild card mentally, where he gets in these stretches. Like you said, he's pretty much not playing because he doesn't want to play right now. And you know how he gets in his feelings. And for a team with so much expectation, who have, in the second time in this generation, mortgaged their future, because they did it in the Paul Pierce trade, um, they got to get it right this time. And so they need Kyrie on board, and I just don't know if you're going to get Kyrie on board. Yeah. And then for Jeff Green... I was happy, like I said, to see him, you know, who knows, maybe the Nets will make a trade again for the deadline. I'm not sure when the deadline even is this year because the schedule is a little bit different. But I was happy from a Georgetown perspective that, like I said, there's so few guys in the league right now. I think you're really just down to two because I'm not sure Greg Winnington's made his debut yet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, last year Greg Monroe chose to go overseas. I think he was in Germany. This year he might be in Russia. Which I think his last the last year he played in the league, I want to say he was on, I think he was on like four teams. You know, he just he's probably a player for a different era of big that, you know, can't shoot. Uh, he's a great passer. He was perfect at Georgetown. Um, I love Greg Monroe. I think he's still an NBA caliber player. He just chose to do something different. He probably got tired of getting yanked around. Like I said, that last season, he might have been on both final teams at one point. But anyway, um, from Jeff Green's perspective, I was happy that he's still on a team that matters because Otto basically is on a team that doesn't matter. Right. So, you know, know, so from, this is the Georgetown pod uh, following Georgetown covered them for a long time. Now I was excited that Jeff Green stayed. Yeah. And it is, uh, he's one of the good guys in the league. He still does so much, even though he's been in the league, what seemingly is forever. But he is a big contributor. He's not one of these guys who are just there for the ride. He hits big shots. He can still play defense. I give him a lot of credit with all the mileage he has. He still plays good defense. He gets on the boards. And he seems to be one of those players that every organization, especially if you're a winning organization, you love to have. So there's a certain level of unselfishness also in his game that plays well with playing with other superstars. So. He's probably a perfect fit. Do you want to know something? Do you want to do you want a uh, Bobby? Did you know? Sure. He uh, he just passed recently. Allen Iverson in games played, regular season games played by NBA Hoyas. Oh wow! Would you have thought that? Wow. Probably, probably not, right? No, not at all. That's a good one. Yeah, so the only the only Hoyas 
in the NBA that have played more games than him are Dikembe Mutombo, Patrick Ewing, and Sleepy Floyd. He's now played more games oh. than Alonzo Mourning and Allen Iverson. So if he stays healthy this year, he will pass Sleepy Floyd and be just behind Dikembe and Patrick. A little surprising. Now, Alonzo, we know, had the kidney issue. And, you know, Jeff had had his problem, too. I mean, I mean, you know, if you ever covered an NBA game that Jeff's part of, and, you know, you you stand there in the middle locker room, if it's pregame, waiting to talk to somebody, or if it's postgame, and, you know, you see guys getting dressed and, you know, all that stuff. I mean, they this is what I always stick up for him. One, I love those teams. He's a local kid. He stayed during mm-hmm. a coaching change. You know, Eshrick had recruited him. He got fired. JT3 came in. He stayed. He's obviously a big part of Georgetown got back on the map. And unfortunately they have to get back on the map again. So you're looking for your next Jeff green at some point, but I mean, they cut this dude open and worked on his heart. Okay. That's a big deal. And he gets a lot of flack for showing glimpses of why people, you know, fawn over him. And then, you know, there's all this Jeff green NBA talk on Twitter, guys like Bill Simmons and stuff like that. But I mean, they cut this dude open. So you got, so like I said, he he missed a bunch of games for that. Alonzo missed a bunch of games and came back after something that you would never, you know, with the whole with his um kidneys. Yeah. But uh yeah, I made a spreadsheet for the NBA Hoyas. I think during the pandemic I was bored and I was just kind of kind of kind of doing stuff and I was like, "Damn, like damn, like, you know, he's he's getting there. He's getting there." Um so that's yeah. kind of it's kind of a uh did you know? I'm going to probably write something about that at some point but uh so that's the trade you speak of the cleveland cavaliers i'm set to work on martin luther king day the wizards host cleveland two o'clock and i brought this up to you before we started talking on the pod do you think that there's any chance that that game might get moved because just the dangerous situation we have in the dc area i i think that i mean i'll tell you right now Everyone in my house is not excited that I'm going down to work that game. <laughs> yeah, no, I would be very concerned um, just because of where we are and um, some of the demonstrations and um, some of the things that law enforcement, both federal and local, have found out that have been planned or being planned. Uh, I would be very concerned uh, to go down there and – I think the NBA should take a look at this, and I think Ted Leonsis should be the one who um, spurns on the conversation of maybe that game should be moved, whether it's to a different date, whether it's to a different location, um, just for the safety of everyone. And uh, I know there's not any fans there. I know there's not many media there, but the players are there. And you just don't know with what's going on and – some of the social ramifications from the NBA and how vocal they've been, what people are planning on doing and to whom that they plan on doing it to. So um, I think for safety reasons that the NBA and the Washington Wizards should definitely take a, a firm look at maybe not playing this game in Washington, or like I said, playing it in a different date. So, Tonight's Wizards game is off for COVID within the Wizards. I want to say it's 
I get the Wizards emails because I cover them. It's Hachimura and someone else is under either contact tracing or I get the the digest. But anyway, they had a game tonight against the Jazz. It's not happening. Friday's game, I'm looking at their schedule right now, is postponed. So they actually play – so I'm not working Sunday, but they play the Cavs back-to-back. They play the Cavs 2 o'clock on oh, no. Sunday. And they play the Cavs Ooh. 2 o'clock on Monday. And you probably know this, but GW's game on Sunday, they're supposed to be hosting Dayton, and they've moved that out of the district, and they're playing it at George Mason. Yes. Yes. And, um, again, smart. I do think that moving these games, uh, just considering with everything going on, is the right thing to do. And wouldn't it be neat if, if the Wizards, and I know back in the day they had played a couple of preseason games there, if they could get on Mason's campus and have a game or two there, that would be that would be pretty cool. But, um, so, no, I think they, they should really, really think about not having it inside Washington, D.C. So it says here, I'm, I'm reading the press release, it says, Sunday's game, this is referring to George Mason hosting Dayton, was moved out of the District of Columbia in anticipation of road closures and other security measures like parking restrictions in place throughout the city. The venue change was made in coordination with the A-10 for the safety, care, and efficiency of all personnel involved. So I think there's a decent chance that, that you know, you know what would make a lot of sense is they're playing Cleveland back-to-back. There's no fans. Just play those games in Cleveland. Right? right, I mean, it's not like it's not like Leonces is going to miss out on selling overpriced beers and crappy food, right? Which is kind of the reason <laughs> they have these games to begin with. Right, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, if you know, this is one of those things. If their G League team was located in Richmond, like some have yeah. been suggesting and begging, that would be a great place to host it. Even though I don't know if that's going to be any safer. Um, yeah, it sounds like state but capitals. No, it, also, it shouldn't be there. You know. Yeah, state capitals aren't aren't safe either. Um, but I just don't think it should be within the district, and that's unfortunate because with everything going on, this is just another thing on the on the on the heap. But um, safety should come first, and so uh, for safety reasons, they they should move the game. And I mean, I mean specifically Monday's game. You know, not to make this the political talk hour but I, I mean you know from what we saw from the people that were down there last week you know Monday being MLK day ahead of inauguration could make people even make you know possibly worse decisions unfortunately so yeah. you yeah. know Georgetown wasn't Georgetown was set to be on the road so it wouldn't have affected them but the Wizards you know, it is obviously it's the NBA and I'm, you know, bringing it up on this pod because I was, I'm set to work it. So just wanted to get your thoughts on that for everyone still listening. And I love you. Um, <laughs> last we or last episode, you weren't on, but both you and I love college football. We happen to follow the same team. And if you've been listening, you know that, you know what team that is. With what Alabama did to Ohio State, and look, the transitive property doesn't, you know, if Ohio State played Notre Dame next week in the Cotton Bowl, Ohio State would probably be favored, I would say, 
anywhere between eight and 12 points, I think is probably about what it would be based on just what we've seen. And, you know, Notre Dame was a, about a 20 point underdog to Alabama. I think that's probably about right. I think, I think their ACC championship game was about a 10 point spread to Clemson. So I think it's in the neighborhood of that. That being said, you know, for all the people that like to crush Notre Dame and all this stuff, and I get that. Were you surprised by just how, how Alabama just rolled over Ohio state. That's supposed to be on that level of having the five stars, having the depth. And honestly, like I said, I have no illusions that Notre Dame would just, you know, beat Ohio state or be favored. But I think that when you go back and you look what they did against Alabama, wasn't that bad because this is just a team that cannot be beat. I completely agree with you. And I even said uh, at halftime, uh, I would say, well, Ohio State's given up more points now than Notre Dame gave up the entire game. So um, that made me feel better for, for about 15 seconds. Yeah, yeah. I was surprised that Alabama was so efficient offensively. Obviously, I knew they would score points. I, it was just in the fashion that they scored them and with ease that they scored them. It, with, it just kind of blew me away because, like you said, Ohio State has – five stars all over the place also. Yeah. So it's not one of those things. And Alabama, this we might look back five years from now and talk about how this was a historic team or a generational team, at least in the BCS college football playoff era. Uh, it might be one of the best that ever laced them up in a championship game or for a regular season. This team was much better than people who wanted to make the Notre Dame game an indictment on where the Irish program is, this was more about just how great this Alabama team is. Yeah, you know, like I said, we, we know you can't look at the transitive property in sports. It's it's fool's gold often. But what Devontae Smith, and I always want to say Devontae Smith-Rivera, what, <laughs> you know, what, what Devontae Smith did in a half, was just, I mean, it's just embarrassing for Ohio State. I mean, I mean, you know, he also lit up Notre Dame, and he, you know, he's he's a great player, and I think he's gonna, I think he's gonna make some teams rethink their philosophy on drafting receivers. But I just, I just couldn't believe what we saw from Ohio State. I, I, I was just very surprised, and I don't know what to say about the sport. You know, I mean, look, a couple of years ago we saw Clemson route Alabama. You know, like yeah. we've seen, we saw Clemson get routed by Ohio State, you know, a couple weeks ago. We've seen all these, even though Alabama's won more than they've lost recently in these games, we've seen all of them sort of take their turns in getting their clocks cleaned. And, you know, maybe I, it just sticks with me more because I do follow Notre Dame. I, I've, you know, I've, I've been, I followed them since I was a kid for uh, football. I like the sport. Um, and we, we kind of know where their ceiling is based on their roster composition. That, that's why I'm so surprised that what we know about Ohio State. I mean, look, I think it would have been bad for the sport if an 8 no team won the national championship because it's just not enough. We didn't get to see them snap the ball enough times, you know. But I just feel like there's these stories that are out there and people just go with the narratives. And it's not going to change the narrative about Notre Dame at all. But, man, college football has kind of become like women's college basketball. It has. 
And I, that's why I was about to say, as long as the college football playoffs are four teams, which I have no problem with it being four teams, but as long as it's four teams, for the foreseeable future, you're going to see Alabama, Clemson, probably in most years, Ohio State. So really, truly, you're playing for one spot. Next year, you could be playing for one spot, whether that's Oklahoma, whether whoever it may be. You are playing for one spot in the playoffs, and, and that's it. And heaven forbid, that could be a second SEC team. So uh, yeah. you're right. I think that's sort of where we are, which is why I think the um, that college football needs to find a way to find some sort of significance in the rest of the bowl games outside of the Rose Bowl, which has, you know, the history on its side, that those games need to somehow, some way count again. And right now, since they've been lessened to basically nothing, um, people can very easily say, oh, well, it's the same teams every year. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who say that. Frankly, for me, that doesn't bother me because the mission of the college football playoffs always was to identify the four best teams. And, and I remind people of this every day. It was not supposed to be the NCAA basketball tournament. And I think people tried to – force it into that sort of narrative, but it was never supposed to be that. So if you're identifying the top four teams and three of them are always the same, then the selection committee is, is doing their job. And and I don't have a problem with it. But like I said, I know a lot of people would like to maybe see someone from the group of five or whatever the case may be. I would just like to see more compelling games. Um but besides that, I think the uh, the committee does a great job each year at selecting the four teams that should be there. Yeah, and when I was speaking with Nolan last week, and he's a he's a Miami follower, and we talked about the game, and I think we mean you traded text about it. Or I can't remember if we talked about it as well, but you know, I actually thought Notre Dame's effort for as annoying and frustrating as it is to watch particularly in football, when a team is just better than you, it can be painful. Mm-hmm. Like in basketball, you can kind of, you know, it's just a different game and, you know, you can get hot from three, you know, I guess in football, you could say if there's a lot of turnovers and the field position flips, you know, that's obviously a big, a big game changer of uh, a neutralizer of talent. But I thought what Notre Dame did against Alabama to in the third quarter, be down 21, seven, having made two stops in a row, driving and they you know book through a he tried to force it, i think to mayor and he threw a pick and then they scored and the game was essentially over i thought it was a good effort and i didn't feel like a loser saying that because you have to be a little bit realistic when you have no yeah. receivers that can do even a tenth of what javante or Devonte <laughs> smith can do you know put you in a bad spot but uh you know i i think the argument like i don't think that this year, like let's say this year there was eight teams, you know, people clamoring for Cincinnati or Coastal Carolina, whatever. I don't think it would have made a difference this year, but I think what you could get, you know, down the road is that the talent doesn't get concentrated at those schools because the kids are like, look, the high end kids are like, well, I could go to K State or I could go you know, to Wisconsin or some of these schools that are usually good, but not quite good enough is that 
the talent might spread a little bit if they if there's more spots open. Right now, if you're a big time five star, you're taking a pretty big risk by not going to Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State. Then there's that next level. You know, LSU just won it, but they haven't been consistent in the playoffs. You get the next level of LSU, Georgia, Oklahoma. You have to include Notre Dame in that in that group as well. You know, so I think. I don't think that like I don't think Cincinnati got screwed this year. You know what I mean? Like I'm not part of that group, but I do right. think long term, if there were like six spots or eight, whatever the spots are that increases, I think that it could be a long term benefit. I could be wrong, but I that's the path forward. I think. Well, my question to you would be: Do you think these schools are getting those guys in bulk because? of the national championship your prospects are getting it or are they getting them in bulk because those are the schools that are sending the most players to the NFL right now? Yeah, it's probably a little bit of both of those things, but I think basically Alabama, cause we we've seen them make, we we've seen them make it when they didn't make the sec title game. Right. Right. So basically at Alabama, you can lose a game and you're pretty much fine. You know, Clemson, you know, a couple of years ago, I think when they won the national championship, they had lost to Pitt. So yeah, they did. You've got some schools that kind of have that buffer. Again, I know if you're listening, you like Georgetown. Hopefully, you're still listening. But for us, that we follow Notre Dame in a normal setting, they can't lose. No, and, they can't. And that's true. And I'm not saying that they should lose, right? I mean, I think in two years, they play both Clemson and Ohio State. So that year, actually, depending on how those, let's say they go 11-1, and they beat one, they lose one, I could see them getting in. But the schedule, and plus they'll play USC and all that stuff. Um, But generally speaking, most schools don't have the luxury of losing a game. So I I think that there is a lot of that that goes into it. Like, look, you want to be in the playoff? And you're big time, you know, and these schools have great facilities and this and that. I, I do think that that matters. And I, I think that if there was if there was more possibilities of getting into the playoff, I think you would see a shift. I'm not saying that it would like it would it would level the playing field by any stretch, but I think that you might see players making that decision. Eh, do I really want to be a part of this where, you know, I might not play as much for two or three years, or you know, hey, look. These other there's other avenues to the spotlight, so mm-hmm. I'm not sure how to fix it, but I think that would, you know, also you know, Saban not coaching would be. And by the way, Steve Sarkeesian, so he had his problems when he was at USC, and right. you know, I love it when these coordinators they go somewhere and it's like Texas. They're a prime example of like, what are you doing with your coaching search, right? Like with your, you know, with like you can get stuck in like just keep making hires, like he's not bringing the Alabama players with him. You know what I mean? Exactly. Right. You know. So. <laughs> so you, you know Texas, I know, and you know Texas by most standards is you know they they've been okay, they just haven't been they haven't been uh, that team. So I just wanted to get I I just wanted to wrap up the college football talk, and I know that. I know that uh, you're also a fan of the sport. Do you have, yeah. do you have anything else, any, anything that I've missed? Anything else you wanna you wanna add to that or to anything? No, no, it's it's pretty covered up. I just think that next season um, we're going to see a lot more of what we saw two years ago, and I think those dominant teams will be just as dominant 
But I, I'm almost intrigued to see how Alabama will fill in the guys who leave, even though I know darn well that they will fill them in. Yeah. I might not know their names now, but I will know their names by next September. Well, you know? And obviously, from a personal sense, because like I said, they're, we're fans of the same team, um, how their quarterback situation plays out and, and, and what they do. And I think I tweeted out, I think their best year, um, if everything goes right, is 10-2. and two, And if things go kind of rocky, it's more of a nine and three, eight and four season. Are you talking about for Notre Dame? Yes. You know, I think their schedule. I mean, they got really well. Um, or their biggest signing of the off season was replacing Clark Lee, who left. And you know, it sounds like by all accounts, the defensive coordinator they just picked up from Cincinnati is, you know, someone that's on like the, you know, a straight path to being a head coach at some point. Hmm. Um, but they, you know, they, they play Cincinnati who brings back a lot of guys. They, you know, they play, they play USC, North Carolina, they get him at home, but that's, you know, their quarterback is going to be a third year. He's going to probably talked about as being a top, whatever pick Mac Brown is obviously yeah. a good coach. Um, mm-hmm. but they've been in the mix. I guess one more thing. I, I brought it up a little bit. Where do you think, where do you think Javon, guys, I said that twice now. Where do you think Devontae Smith Rivera, where do you think Devontae Smith's going to get drafted? Like, how high would you go based on what we've seen? He seems like a freak, but man, taking receivers high is just kind of fool's gold at times. Well, definitely top 15, he will go. Um, I don't know if he'll go top 10 because there's got to be a guy, a team that's going to need a field flipper. And he can flip the field. And I think in the NFL, flipping the field is even more important than what it was probably 15, 20 years ago. And I know the narrative is, well, the wide receiver position isn't as important as it was at one time, but you've got to be able to throw this ball. And and you need three good wide receivers uh, to be able to be the threat. That you know, look at a place like Tampa Bay Buccaneers, where they do have those three receivers that are threats, and and they even made Jameis Winston at times look competent, which is not always easy to do on the NFL level. Um, when you have those weapons, uh, it makes a huge difference. So I think some team will say, "Hey, we have two good ones. This third one puts us over the top," and boy, their receivers get into the NFL and they perform. Uh, so I, I think top 15, even though the narrative is, is uh, you're taking a risk if you take a receiver early. Well, the crazy thing is he's got to battle, you know, the guy from his own team, Waddle, right? Waddle, yeah. And, and then yep. there's the, there's the kid at LSU that didn't even play this year, Chase. Mm-hmm. But, man, it's, I mean, obviously it's recency bias, but, you know, but just seeing him against Notre Dame and, than seeing him, I mean, good God, what would have happened if he'd played the second half the other night? <laughs> right. <laughs> you <No>. know? <laughs> it's, it's an embarrassment of riches. So, you know, it's hard. If the draft was next week, I feel like he might be in the mix for top five pick. I mean, how can you look at that kid and not – I think I saw someone describe him as sort of like he's like the Iverson on the football field right now. Wow. Yeah. You know, yeah, just... I mean, you have a good team with a um, with a good quarterback that's looking for some weapons, and you plug him in, and I'm telling you, it's it's 
it can be a difference maker. I think you saw it out with the with the Raiders with um their Alabama receiver, uh, Ruggs the third. He yeah. made a difference. Even when he wasn't catching the ball, the idea that he was stretching the field and giving guys like Aguilar space to run, it, it made the team better. And supposedly they drafted the wrong Alabama <laughs> receiver because a lot of people wanted them to take the other guy. <laughs> yeah, well, speaking of making people better, and please tweet me if you've listened this far. A lot of you do. It's time for, oh, God, MTC with the cut. Is that right? MTC with Moop. God, man, I got to get that just written on my arm. It's time for no us. Worries. It's time for us. See, I, I, that's why I just made mine my name. It's just it's my boring name. That's why it's time for us to go watch the end of Mac McClung and the fighting Red Raiders versus Shaka in the top five Texas Longhorns. It's time for us to go. If you listen, subscribe, rate, all that stuff. Pretty much everyone is listening on Apple, although we are on other platforms. But based on the numbers I'm looking at, it's Apple versus the world. Marcus, hopefully the next time you're on, we can actually talk about Georgetown basketball games. Hopefully everyone stays safe, including yourself. Until next time. Everyone have a good night.